Bibles to Genesis 27. If you've got the Pew Bible in front of you, it's, we're going to be on page 21 this morning. Another decent-sized story to work through. We've been getting a lot of these lately in our study of Genesis. Uh, as always, uh, go to slido.com and type in RevCDA if you have questions, and we'll, we'll go through some Q&R at the end. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we are um, well, we want to be people that are grateful. We want to be people that recognize your goodness and your faithfulness to us, that um, lay down our lives before you. Um, confess that that we're not always that way. we've uh, we've been shaped. Um, we were talking about in class this morning, we, we've been shaped by this culture that we live in to be uh, self-sufficient, to be individualistic, to take care of our own needs. Uh, and God, I just pray that as we uh, look into your word and, and see, um, see these people that you love, that you care for, behave in a way that just goes against your character that we would learn that we would see their example and, and recognize that there's a better way in Jesus to live our lives. Uh, I pray that you would speak to us this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So I tend to be a pretty self-sufficient person. Um, one of the things that my family does not like about me is that if I want something, I will buy it. And that's a problem around my birthday and around Christmas time. I don't know how many times I have been uh, on my wife's bad side because an Amazon package shows up with the thing that I've been wanting that she had already bought for me for my birthday and hid away for a number of weeks. She doesn't like that. I was told this year that I am very hard to shop for because of it. But the reality is, like, I just, I, that's a thing that I need, so I'm just going to buy it. I just, that's how my mind works. A darker side of this uh, is I tend to be untrusting of the abilities of other people. I used to manage a department uh, at the Croc Center, and we would have staff meetings, and I would assign tasks, because there were five of us, and, and I couldn't do it all. And I would get, I had assigned tasks to the other guys on my team. But then I wouldn't really be sure that they were going to get them done. So sometimes I would, I would just go in and help, or I'd just kind of go behind them and, and just do it for them. I'm probably better at it than they are, and I could probably just do it myself. In both of those instances, my self-sufficiency, my self-esteem is not an asset to the community, it's a liability. It's a character flaw. It's not a strength that I can use to contribute, but it's a weakness that sucks the life out of the community. And that's, that's true with all of our strengths. We're all built different ways. And, and you, can, you can see something in yourself that can be used for really beautiful and good things. Uh, and it can also be used for really dangerous and destructive things. But self-sufficiency is kind of a hallmark 
of Jacob's story. We saw a little bit of it in chapter 25. We took a break last week to talk about Isaac, and then we're back focusing on Jacob and Esau in chapter 27. Just by way of reminder, in chapter 25, verse 23, Rebecca is pregnant with twins. She doesn't know it, but the pregnancy is very difficult. She goes to the Lord to say, what's going on? And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will come from you and be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. This is how God is orchestrating his promise. He's he's got this plan for how to fix the problem with the world. Remember, sin and death entered the world in the garden, and we've reaped the consequences of it, and God has a plan to put it right. And that plan is going to run through Jacob. The younger will serve the older. He is going to be the one that carries on the promise. He's the chosen one. And we, we read in Romans a couple of weeks ago, why is he the chosen one? Is it because he's good? Is it because he's awesome? No, it has nothing to do with who he is. It's God's gift of grace to him. And Jacob, simply by being born, just gets to receive it. God says, you're the one that I've chosen for this work. But we're going to continue to see today and then for many chapters in the future, for decades, Jacob is going to say, I got this, God. I'll take care of this myself. I know how to make your will come to pass better than you do. Until one day, God literally physically assaults Jacob, beats him into submission, and dislocates his hip. And that's the point that something breaks in Jacob's mind and heart, and he begins to trust God. But that's not until chapter 32. In chapter 27, Jacob is a very different man. But he's not totally the only one to blame here because he's a part, as we will see, of a family of broken people, a family of scheming people. Last week, we saw Isaac portrayed as the son of his father. Remember, the, the author in, in, of Genesis, Moses, points to all of these instances in Isaac's life to, to go, like, look, he is the promised son of Abraham. Look how he's similar to Abraham. He's going to carry the line onto the future. And that, that, that similarity is, he's a mixed bag, just like everyone else, but he is ultimately faithful. But in today's story, everyone in the family is behaving badly. This whole family's brokenness is on full display. And this, if maybe you're here today and, and you're, you're considering the claims of Christianity, you're not sure you're totally bought into this whole Jesus thing. And this is one of the really important things I think about the Bible is that it doesn't sugarcoat its heroes. It, it would be really tempting, like Jacob and Esau and Abraham and, and the sons of Jacob later on. These are like the George Washingtons and Thomas Jeffersons of Israel's story. These are the big heroes, the founding fathers. And it would be really tempting hundreds of years later to write a really nice story about how great they were and how they always followed God and were just so virtuous. That's not what we read. They're a mess. There's honesty in this book. And I think that is one of the reasons that we can find it trustworthy. This is what people are like, even people that God is using. So first of all, we see Isaac. 
And Isaac here is playing favorites. When Isaac was old and his eyes were weak so that he could not see, he called his older son Esau and said to him, my son. And he answered, here I am. And he said, look, I am old and I do not know the day of my death. So now take your hunting gear, your quiver and your bow and go out in the field to hunt some game for me. Make me a delicious meal that I love and bring it to me to eat so that I can bless you before I die. So this idea is something that's kind of foreign to us as Westerners. We don't really think this way. Blessing and cursing was a very deeply meaningful expression. And it was something that spoke into the real future of the one being blessed. And it's possible that Isaac is is prophetically in his blessing seeing a future. It's also possible that Isaac's blessing is just something that God is going to honor We don't really know how this works, but we see over and over again that there are blessings and curses in the Bible that actually have real world consequences to them. The words that Isaac has for his son is actually going to shape his future. And as we read this, maybe maybe at first glance, it seems like maybe it's the right thing to do. Isaac is old, he's concerned that he could die any day and he wants to bless his son. But if we start comparing this story with other blessings in Genesis, something sticks out, and I want your help here. In Genesis 48, we see another blessing. Joseph, Jacob's son, this is quite a ways down the road, he comes to Jacob. He brings Jacob his sons. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? And Joseph said to his father, these are my sons God has given me here. So Israel, Israel's Jacob, Israel said, bring them to me and I will bless them. So help me out here. Who does Joseph bring to be blessed by his father? Who who comes to be blessed? The children. How many children? Two children. Joseph's children, right? Okay, we'll do one more. Next chapter. Jacob called his sons and said, Gather round and I will tell you what happened to you, will happen to you in the days to come. These are the tribes of Israel, 12 in all, and this is what their father said to them. He blessed them and he blessed each one with a suitable blessing. Who does Jacob call to bless at the end of his life? His sons. How many? All of them, right? Yeah, all of his sons. Who does Isaac call to be blessed? Esau. Just one. He's got two sons. His job as a father is to bless his sons. And he just calls Esau. Gordon Wenham says, Had this been a proper deathbed farewell, all the sons should have been invited to receive a blessing. But it was not. Esau alone was summoned because Isaac intended to confer a blessing only on him. We've already learned that Isaac loved Esau more than Jacob. But you have to assume that this prophecy about the younger serving the older was known. I mean, when I can't imagine that when Rebekah heard this from the Lord, she didn't tell Isaac. And so it's as though Isaac is deliberately trying to cut Jacob out by getting Esau to come quickly to make this meal for this blessing ceremony. Quick, do this real fast. We'll get it done without telling your brother and your mom so that you will get the whole blessing. Just another reminder, parents, don't play favorites with your kids. It will turn out badly. 
Rebecca is also playing favorites. Starting verse 5, in 5 through 10, Rebecca, she, she overhears the plan and she develops her own scheme to trick her husband into blessing her favorite son instead, Jacob. This whole family is just filled with dysfunction. And then in verse 11, Jacob answered Rebekah, his mother, look, my brother Esau is a hairy man, but I am a man with smooth skin. Suppose my father touches me. Then I will be revealed to him as a deceiver and bring curse rather than a blessing on myself. And his mother said to him, your curse be on me, my son. Just obey me and go get them for me. Jacob is concerned, right? Not that this scheme is wrong, but that he might get caught. And that's a good question for us. Like, where do our ethics come from? Do we have an internal conviction about things that are right and wrong, or are we just acting because of outward pressure? There are, you can find in different uh, psychology scenarios, these hypothetical situations. Like, if, if the bank accidentally transferred a million dollars to your account and you found it, and nobody knew, and you could be sure that no one would ever know, would you call the bank and tell them they made the mistake, or would you keep the money? Even more sinister, if, if you could be 100% sure, guaranteed, that you could commit adultery against your spouse, and no one would ever find out, would you do it? Where do our ethics come from? Do we answer those questions based on what we believe is right and wrong or based on a fear of getting caught? And, and our hope as, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, is that we would be people who are becoming transformed into the likeness of Christ and given a heart that internally has deeply held convictions about what is true and good. But Jacob isn't there yet. Jacob's like, whoa, what if I get caught? But Rebecca, she has a plan. She's a schemer, just like her son. And if it backfires, she will take the curse, she says. And I don't, really, I don't think she even understands what that means. But the reality, again, like if there's a curse involved, it's a real thing. And she says, just do what you're told, Jacob. I'll take care of it. So then we read on. So he went and got the goats and brought them to his mother, and his mother made the delicious food his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best clothes of her older son Esau, which were in the house, and had her younger son Jacob wear them. And she put the skins on the young goats on his hands and the smooth part of his neck, and she handed the delicious food and the bread she had made to her son Jacob. When he came to his father, he said, My father. And he answered, Here I am. Who are you, my son? And Jacob replied to his father, I'm Esau, your firstborn. I've done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game that I may that, so that you may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How did you ever find it so quickly, my son? And he replied, Because the Lord your God made it happen for me. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come closer so I can touch you, my son. Are you really my son Esau or not? So Jacob came closer to his father Isaac. When he touched him, he said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau, and so he blessed him. Again, he said, are you really my son Esau? And he replied, I am. Then he said, bring it closer to me and let me eat some of my son's game so that I can bless you. Jacob brought it closer to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, please come closer and kiss me, my son. So he came closer and kissed him. 
When Isaac smelled his clothes, he blessed him and said, ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. And here's the blessing. May God give you from the dew of the sky and from the richness of the land an abundance of grain and new wine. May people serve you and nations bow in homage to you. Be master over your relatives. May your mother's sons bow in homage to you. Those who curse you will be cursed and those who bless you will be blessed. And so the plan goes off without a hitch. It's really interesting how these stories are connected in chapter 25 and chapter 27. And in chapter 25, if you remember, Esau comes in from the field. He's been hunting and he, he sees Jacob cooking. And Esau says, I'm so hungry, I'm going to die. And Jacob says, well, I have some food. Trade me your birthright. Trade me your material inheritance for this food. And then in chapter 27, we see Isaac saying, you know what? I think I'm about to die. I need some food. Go make me some food. And Jacob gets in there and uses the food to steal the blessing, the spiritual inheritance. Jacob's character is on display in these stories. He is a schemer. But worse than that, and I mentioned this a little bit last time, Jacob, his name means he catches the heel. If you remember when they were born, Esau came out first and Jacob was holding Esau's heel, the heel catcher. The first time we read about the heel catcher is in Genesis 3 when God says to Eve that the serpent will catch on to the heel of the chosen one. We're meant to recall that in the life of Jacob. Jacob, in this story, plays the role of the snake. Think about it. He wears a disguise. He tempts his victim with food. He lies about God. I caught the game because God was with me. His victim is characterized as being blind. Remember, Eve was, was blind. Isaac is blind. And this is so crucial for us as we think about God's word. Jacob is the father of this nation we call Israel. And Israel is, is kind of the centerpiece of a lot of the story of the Old Testament. And Israel culminates in bringing forth Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, right? And it would be tempted to paint Jacob as the hero in these stories. Like maybe like Maverick and Top Gun or Batman, Right? They're a little unorthodox in their methods. They bend the rules a little bit, but all for the right reasons. But this is not who Jacob is. Jacob is intentionally being portrayed here as acting like the devil. In our men's discipleship class last week, we were talking about how the Bible is actually God's story. And I, I know many of you are familiar with that, but the, if you're not, the the temptation would be to open this book and think that the main character here is Jacob. The main character was Abraham. But the reality is this book from cover to cover is God's story of his own character and his own goodness and the way he relates to a broken world. His faithfulness, his goodness, his patience with broken people. And that's really good news for you and me because we are broken people. We are sinful people. And in the story of our lives, we are often the villain. 
We are self-centered, we are greedy, we do terrible things to ourselves and to others for personal gain, just like Jacob. And God still comes after us and loves us and wants to be with us despite ourselves. So that was scheming son number one. He had his, his mom's plan and he got away with it. So scheming son number two, as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob and Jacob had left the presence of his father Isaac, his brother Esau arrived from his hunting. He had also made some delicious food and brought it to his father. He said to his father, let my father get up and eat some of his son's game so that you may bless me. But his father Isaac said to him, who are you? And he answered, I am Esau, your firstborn son. Isaac began to tremble uncontrollably. Who was it then, he said, who got into game and brought it to me? I ate it all before you came in, and I blessed him. Indeed, he will be blessed. When Esau heard his father's words, he cried out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me too, my father. But he replied, Your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. So he said, isn't he rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me twice now. He took my birthright and look, now he has taken my blessing. Then he asked, haven't you saved a blessing for me? But Isaac answered Esau, look, I've made him a master over you. have given all of his relatives as his servants and have sustained him with grain and new wine. What can I do for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me too, my father. And Esau wept loudly. His father Isaac answered him, look, your dwelling place will be away from the richness of the land, away from the dew of the sky above. You will live by your sword and you will serve your brother. But when you rebel, you will break his yoke from your neck. I find it really easy to feel bad for Esau here. Like the, the emotional impact in the way this story is written is really intense, isn't it? Esau wails, bless me too. Don't you have something for me, Father? But this question, it betrays the whole thing, doesn't it? Isaac should have had a blessing for both boys. They should have come and received them together. But Isaac wanted to bless Esau alone, and Esau was in on it. Go and cook some food real quick, and I'll bless you by yourself. I'll give you the whole family blessing and we'll leave your brother out of it. That's the plan that Esau signed up for. And when his brother takes the blessing, he takes all of it. And Isaac like, like has this blessing for Esau. He like scrapes the bottom of his blessing barrel to find something, anything. You know, you won't get any of the good stuff I promised your brother, but someday you'll rebel against him at least. Thanks, sorry. Like he doesn't have anything left. In Proverbs 26, we read, the one who digs a pit will fall into it and whoever rolls a stone, it will come back on him. This is the reality for Esau, right? Like he's, he's a willing participant in this scheme to cut his brother out of the inheritance and it backfires and he gets cut out of the blessing. In verse 41, Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. And Esau determined in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are approaching, then I will kill my brother Jacob. Esau is so angry, he's going to kill his brother. 
I wonder why, why, why is he so angry? And maybe that seems like a stupid question. But I think it's worth interrogating, especially when so many of us get angry. Like, do you get angry? I get angry. They're scheming. Esau's scheming. Jacob's sch- all their scheming. This is a, this is a control me- mechanism, right? It's, it's when we step into a situation and say, okay, there's these variables, and I'm going to position these variables in a certain way for a certain outcome. I will manipulate the circumstances for the outcome that I want. And it doesn't work out. This is why um, villains are so angry at the end of the movie when the hero defeats them. We were, we've been watching uh, fantasy movies at home. And, and the villain, we watched uh, the last installment of one series. And, and the villain was just so mad that the hero beat him. And it wasn't just because bad things happened. It was because he had planned out every last detail of this master plan of how he was going to ascend to be the most powerful being in the universe. And it didn't work out. It wasn't just some natural bad thing that occurred. It was an affront to his ability to control. See, anger, in many cases doesn't just come from things not going our way. It comes from the plans that we have made being ruined. And so Esau is angry. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Screwtape Letters, um, if you're not familiar, it's, it's a fictional dialogue between a senior demon and a junior demon talking about tempting people. And uh, the senior demon says, men are not angered by mere misfortune, but by misfortune conceived as injury. And the sense of injury depends on the feeling that a legitimate claim has been denied. The more claims on life, therefore, that your patient can be induced to make, the more often he will feel injured and as a result, ill-tempered. This is a temptation for us that we Uh, Like Lewis says, we'll make these claims on life. This is the way my life needs to go. This is the job I need to get. These are the children that I need to have. This is the route I need to take to work. And if any of those things get disrupted, I'm going to be angry. Not, Not in the inconvenience or the change of plans in themselves necessarily, but the fact that they were my ideas that I wanted to accomplish and something or someone is preventing my will from going forward. So Esau is angry. He and his father schemed to get all of the blessing, and Jacob ruined it. But we're not done with the scheming yet. Verse 42, when the words of her older son Esau were reported to Rebekah, she summoned her younger son Jacob and said to him, listen, your brother Esau is consoling himself by planning to kill you. So now, my son, listen to me. Flee at once to my brother Laban in Haran and stay with him for a few days until your brother's anger subsides, till your brother's rage turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send for you and bring you back from there. Why should I lose both in one day? So Rebekah said to Isaac, I'm sick of my life because of these Hethite girls. If Jacob marries someone from around here like these Hethite girls, what good is my life? 
See, Rebecca can't leave well enough alone. The, the relationships in this family are so broken by deception and greed that any kind of reconciliation is impossible. Jacob, you're going to have to get out of here. Go to my brother's house. Lay low until things cool down. Probably just a couple days. Don't worry, though. I'll manipulate your father some more in order to get that to happen. And this is what she does. She, she goes to Isaac and doesn't just straight up say what's going on, come out into the open and speak truth about the situation. She, she speaks half-truths and insinuates and says some things about Esau's wives that she doesn't like in order to get him to do what she wants. She manipulates him. And this pattern of taking control and scheming to get what you want is going to be Jacob's philosophy of life for decades. Chapter after chapter, we're going to see him acting this out in order to get what he wants. And the sad thing is, in the words of Tim Mackey, the whole story is about him trying to grab and seize and scheme his own way to get the blessings that God was before birth trying to give him as a gift all along. See, Jacob has been chosen. In the very beginning of chapter 25, we found out that he is the promised son. He's the one that's going to carry on the line to the Messiah. He doesn't have to do anything to earn that. He doesn't have to steal anything. He doesn't have to scheme and lie and trick anyone to be chosen. He's already chosen, and he will be blessed. But he doesn't, he doesn't believe that. He has to go after it himself. And this is so important for us. Because today, Christian, you are blessed you have been chosen by God. He loves you. You don't have to do anything to earn it or steal it from someone or scheme in order to get his favor on your life. You already have it. I want to read this passage from the book of Ephesians. Many of you know it, but it's brilliant. Listen, listen closely to this. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. In him, we have also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will so that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. In him, you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. If you are in Christ this morning, that is true about you. All of those amazing promises, those, those big words that are even hard to wrap our minds around, 
That's true about you. But we don't believe it, do we? So often we live our lives in doubt of God's goodness, God's love for us. We hear it, but then we say like, no, it's okay, God, I'm going to take care of myself. I'm going to hide and manipulate. I'm going to scheme and plan for my own good because I'm not sure God can handle it. And we don't say that part out loud because that doesn't seem very holy. But this is how we live so many times. And sometimes this is why God takes us so far down a painful road. Not always. There's many reasons why we experience suffering. But in Jacob's life, it's going to take a long time and a lot of pain for him to realize that he doesn't have what it takes to control his life, and he needs to give it over to God. Bob Coughlin, in um, his book on worship ministry, talks about going to a counselor and just and, and, and being in a really low point in his ministry and, and just saying he feels hopeless. And he's just, he's just trying so hard to get these things done and, and have this, this good... Uh, experience leading this community through music and song and, 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 and being successful and doing the right thing. And he's just working hard at it. And, and he says, I just feel hopeless. And he writes that his counselor told him, if you were completely hopeless, you'd stop trusting in what you think you can do to change the situation and start trusting in what Christ, Jesus Christ has already done for you at the cross. See, for Coughlin, he, he wasn't hopeless enough. He was still fighting and striving and scheming and trying to make things work in his own strength. He wasn't willing to give it over to Jesus. It's like we'd say, thank you for dying to save me from sin and death before I was even born, but now that I'm here, I'll take over. I got this. That's so foolish, isn't it? But we do it all the time. So how do we get out from this anger and fear, manipulation that comes from our need to scheme and control? And the answer is faith, trusting in God. And this isn't just something we receive. It is something that we receive, but in our everyday practice, it's something that we do. Faith is, is part of the way we live out our lives. It's an actively not getting in God's way and letting him work. I began to learn this in my job at the Croc Center when, when I would assign my staff something to do and then I would just let them do it. And I hated that. It was super stressful and it made me all kinds of anxious, but I needed to let go and say, hey, you know what? This is what they're here for. They, uh, they are skilled and talented. I, I hired them. I know why I hired them because I thought they were talented and I'm going to let them do their jobs. In my day today, I was telling I was telling Brian this morning that I was uh, I was meeting with my spiritual director this this week, and and he was talking about uh, we were talking about my life, and and uh, he said I think you've got just a lot of anxiety in your in your heart, and I said no I don't think so I'm not anxious at all, and and he goes no, and then we he he asked some better questions, and I was like oh yeah I'm super anxious all the time, and. Uh, one of the things that, that I can do to help with that, and one of the things that's really hard for me to do, is, is I, I've begun starting my morning. I try to have a, a consistent prayer rhythm, but I've, I've incorporated in, into my prayer rhythm just 10 minutes 
of stillness and silence. And then I go to my office and I set a timer on my phone and I just sit there and be present with God. And it's really hard for me to do that because instantly the future comes flooding into my mind, right? This is the thing that I have to do today. This is the deadline that's coming up. These are the people that are mad at me. These are the people that aren't mad at me. You know, all of these things are constantly flooding and I have to, every second it seems, go, I'm here in this moment with Jesus. And the reason I do that is because it's so unproductive, right? Like it pushes back against everything that I think is a good idea on a Monday morning or a Wednesday morning. Like I've got a, I love, I've got this great yellow notepad with all the things on it that I need to get done and I just love checking them off. It's so much fun. It feels so good. And I get to work in the morning and I've got that list and I've got my computer and I've got my email and just all the things and I go, no, I'm just going to sit here and connect with Christ. And from one perspective, it's 10 minutes of wasted time. But from another perspective, it is exactly what I need to push back against my own need for control. And it's that moment in the morning that Jesus comes and meets me and reminds me that he's got it all taken care of. And all of the anxiety and fear and scheming that I have in my heart is totally unnecessary because he knows the end from the beginning and he promised to take care of me. And I say that not because I've figured it out, but because I'm really bad at it and I need help and I'm working on it. Isaiah, prophet Isaiah in chapter 46, we'll end with this. He challenges the people towards faithfulness. And this is what he says. He says, remember what happened. He's he's speaking for God. Remember what happened long ago. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and no one is like me. I declare the end from the beginning and from long ago what is not yet done, saying my plan will take place and I will do all my will. And that's a, there's two pieces of that, right? First, you have, to, you have to trust that God is for your good. And then you have to trust that God will actually come through on his promises. And I think, I think both of those things are true, right? That Jesus, we just read it in Ephesians, you've been, you've been chosen in Christ to inherit all of these beautiful blessings and riches and, 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 and resources. And he's going to make sure that it works out. And I would just encourage you, if, if, you're, if you're like me and you find that you get in the way of that, if you're like Jacob, Esau, Isaac, Rebecca, if, if that's, if that's kind of your uh, every day, is how can I... How can I work this out to my own advantage? How can I manipulate these things so that the good thing happens? If you struggle with that, like, 
Spend some time in silence, letting that go. Spend some time in God's word going over the promises that he's made to you. Memorize them if you can. Internalize them. Speak them over yourself when you're stressed. When you find your your heart drifting into a desire for control and manipulation. And just, even if it's like every moment of every day, just give it back over to Jesus. I'm just, this is yours. I'm going to set this down. I've been promised this and you're going to take care of it. I don't need to worry about this. It's yours. I don't think that's very easy, but I think that's the calling that we are called to. Let's do some questions. What's the significance with denial and with the number three in the Bible? I'm both this story and Peter denying Christ. Denial is done three times. Hmm. I don't know. I have no idea. That's an interesting observation, though. If I know anything about the Bible, it probably matters. I don't know. I'll look into that. It's a good good detail. I think the lesson learned here is only have one kid. (laughs) Seems like every sibling story in the Bible involves problems and issues. I mean, you're not wrong about problems and issues. I think there's some verses, though, that suggest maybe more kids are a good idea. Could Isaac and Rebekah be acting wise as serpents to bless Jacob as God said and curse Esau? Isaac stubbornly won't bless. Instead, he curses. I mean, yeah, I guess there's a way to read this in which... um, all of these things seem to be the right way to, to handle the situation. I'm not sure that, that that's exactly what this question is saying, but um, I think it's important to kind of superimpose just the ethics of the kingdom over all of this and, and say, like, what is the heart of God here? And is, is, God, is God asking these people to work duplicitously in order to get his will done. And I don't, I, I, I'm not sure you can make that case. Um, I think there's, I think it's hard to say that Isaac and Rebecca are um, working this out the way, the best way that they could. Uh, and I think there's probably, um, would have been a better way to go about this as we see in, in Jacob when he blesses his sons when, when he dies. There's a lot of dysfunction in that family, but he seems to do it in a much more uh, open and transparent way. 
Do you think it was God's plan that Jacob was the chosen, or did God just foreknow what Rebecca would scheme, then God worked his plan through Rebecca's choice? <laughs> um, so Romans seems to think that it's God's plan, so I'm going to go with that. Um, but that, that is a question, right, about like how foreknowledge works. God exists outside of time, before time begins, knows everything that's going to happen. Does God choose the things that would happen, or does he just know that they're going to happen? Uh, that's a big that's a big can of worms that we're not going to wrestle down today. Um, but I think in this specific case, the plan was that the younger would serve the older and that Rebecca's scheming uh, is how that unfolded. But I don't know that it had to unfold that way. This story smacks of the struggle between Ishmael and Isaac. Do you think this favoritism is born from the rivalry that he has with his own brother? Yeah, it could be. I mean, I, it's, I, I think I said this last week. It's, it's kind of fun to like uh, psychoanalyze people in the Bible that we don't really have a lot of connection to. But um, it's possible that, there's, that that rivalry is what fuels Jacob's character. It's possible the fact that his dad tried to kill him when he was young has something to do with his own deficiencies. We don't really know. The text doesn't say. Um, it's, it's not the concern of, of the story about why this is happening, but it is definitely a theme throughout the scripture that there's this, this sibling rivalry that goes on from generation to generation, and, and it's kind of passed down um, in that way, and it, it comes all the way, um, starts at Cain and Abel, right? Doesn't waiting for the timer to go off give you anxiety? <laughs> okay, so I had to download a different sound from the App Store because all of the ones on the iPhone scared me. And I found one, it cost me $2, but it just goes boom. And it's, it's, light, it's lovely. So no, I'm, I'm totally fine with that. It's great. Hmm. A couple more questions. Why do we stand for the Word of God? That's a good question, kind of a meta question. Um, because the Word of God is authoritative. Uh, and we uh, reverence the Word of God by standing when we have it read over us. And then we sit down when I come up here because I am not authoritative. <laughs> right? The things that I say, as long as they are concurrent with God's Word hopefully are authoritative and they're used by the Spirit of God. But God's Word is the authority that we submit ourselves to, and that's why we stand when we read it. Last question. Why does Jacob say to Isaac, your God, instead of our God or my God, in verse 20? Yeah, so Isaac said to his son, how did you find it so quickly, my son? And he replied, because the Lord, your God, made it happen for me. I mean, we don't know, but I feel like this is a clue, right, as to Jacob's character. Like, he doesn't quite buy it. He hasn't quite experienced God in his life. We'll see in chapter 28, he, he flees his brother and he spends the night at this place called Bethel and he has this experience and he gets totally weirded out by it. Um, but it's this opportunity for God to, to say that I am your God, Jacob, not just your father's God. And so in some sense, 
at this point, I mean, and also he's like, you know, lying. Like, <laughs> there's, like there's all these other things going on that Jacob's trying to uh, manipulate his father. Um, but yeah, it's, it kind of makes you think maybe Jacob doesn't know God as well as he needs to. And part of this journey that we're going to be on with him over the next several chapters is going to, we're going to watch him grow in his understanding of who God is. Good questions. We're going to take communion, like we always do. And I think it's, it's instructive for us that the communion meal was instituted the night that Jesus was betrayed. It was not given to us the morning that he rose from the dead. Right? You could, you could imagine he, he rises from the dead and he meets everybody by the Sea of Galilee or in the upper room or somewhere and says, hey, here's a meal that I want you to share to remember the work that I've done. He doesn't do that. He does it on the day that he is going to die. It symbolizes his death, not his resurrection. That doesn't mean that his resurrection isn't important, but it is interesting that we are called to remember over and over and over again the time in the story where everything seemed hopeless. Where the the king who was going to bring in the new kingdom is arrested by the Romans and beaten and dragged before unjust rulers and whipped and crucified and killed and his followers are scattered and all of the plans they had made have gone wrong. That's the place that Jesus calls us back to every week. We want to be people who rejoice in the resurrection, rejoice in victory and power and promise. Amen to that. But the thing I want you to remember, Jesus says, is that night that everything seemed to be going wrong and you were totally out of control. That's when God did the work of redemption. That's when God saved you. We remember the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus because we're never meant to get past that, are we? We're always called back to our own inability. The disciples that night had no control. They could not make things happen. And they had to trust that Jesus was in control on their behalf, even when it looked really bad. And I I know, I mean, for many of us, it feels like some or all of our lives are out of control. There are parts of your life that you're like, man, this really needs to go this way, and it's going this way. You've made plans. You've got, maybe you've got spreadsheets. I know some of you are spreadsheet people. You're my people. And you've got to do something about it. What are we going to do about it? And here's Jesus' answer. Take this bread. Take this cup. Eat it. Drink it. Remember me. Maybe that doesn't make any sense. To make even less sense of it, as we do that, the band's going to come up and we're going to sing. 
We're going to sing to God and we're going to sing to one another. And maybe you're here and you're like, what's that going to do? How's that going to fix my problems? And just like getting up early and sitting in silence, that's kind of the point. It's the way that we say, you know what? Jesus has got this. I am free to remember his sacrifice of his life on the cross for my sin on my behalf. I'm free to rejoice in that, to sing about that, to gather with the people of God and just spend a little bit of time focusing my heart and my mind on who the king really is. And my anxieties, my fears, my problems, the schemes that I have to make my life go the way I want it to, they can be set aside for a little bit. Because Jesus has got it taken care of. And so that was, that's what I would encourage us in this morning is that as, as we sing together, come up and take the bread and the cup. We have wine and juice per the dictates of your conscience and take it back to your seat and just spend a few moments being present with the Lord. As the anxieties of your life pour into your mind, which they will, just give them over to Jesus and let them go for a minute, for two. You're welcome to sit or stand as we sing. You're welcome to come up on the prayer rugs and kneel. But spend some time just giving your consent once again, maybe, maybe for the 50th time today. Jesus, you're on the throne. You're in charge. You've got this. I don't have to. Let's pray. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.